That is a hard act to follow. Great job. Well, greetings to you this uh, last Sunday of Advent. Wow. Going by quickly here, huh? So we've uh, <clears throat> been looking at the themes of the Advent candles. <clears throat> we, did, uh, we did hope. We did love. We did joy last week. And now the fourth candle is the candle of peace. And uh, as we've done before, what, uh, what we want to remind ourselves of is that these themes are themes of the whole Bible. Uh, they, they run through from virtually the beginning, through the prophets, right down to the time of Jesus. So, so as we think about the birth of Jesus and what he came to do, we're reminding ourselves that he came to uh, fulfill and complete all of those ideas, all the promises of God are brought together in him. As Paul says, as many as may be the promises of God in Christ, they are yes, they are amen in him. That's where God brings it all together. And so it is with the theme of peace and uh, we've been looking at the, the prophet Isaiah, who I think more than any person in the Old Testament uh, presented visions of these themes. And that's why the New Testament writers so often go back and quote the book of Isaiah when they explain to us what Jesus came to do. So we're going we're gonna to do the same thing again. We're going to take a passage from Isaiah and look at that and see think about its fulfillment in Jesus. And we're going to take what I believe is maybe the most beautiful passage in the whole of the Old Testament. It's Isaiah chapter 55. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> and see if you can pick up on the, the, the imagery that Isaiah is using. He's painting a, a poetic picture of the future. <clears throat> Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. 
and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. All right, so Isaiah lives and ministers around 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. He lives in a, uh, in a difficult time, a time when peace was hard to come by, a time when uh, he and the people of Judah uh, watched the armies of the Assyrian Empire invade the northern portions of, of the land. And actually, uh, a period of time when the, the northern ten tribes were dissolved, disappeared. And the Assyrians came down and actually surrounded Jerusalem. It was that close a thing, and God delivered them. And he looked ahead uh, as well to greater difficulties to come from the empire of Babylon, which was the, the succeeding empire. So it was a difficult time. And, uh, and yet he envisioned this time when, as he said to the people, you will be led forth in joy and peace will come. So let's give a little attention to this. Uh, as I said, I, I, th- I think it's the, maybe the most beautiful chapter in the Old Testament. Let's pick up on a couple things. Isaiah 55 opens with an invitation, an invitation to a banquet. Come, everyone who's thirsty, everyone who is hungry, come and receive, partake of the feast. And of course, this is poetry. This This is a picture of the yearning of our hearts. Everybody is thirsty. Everybody is hungry, not just physically, but but he's really talking about soul hunger, isn't he? Soul thirst. And this is a theme that that the Bible addresses. This is a This is the invitation that Jesus talks about. Later in Luke, he says, People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Here's the message. Here is the heart of the good news, the heart of gospel. That the deepest yearnings of our hearts are what God desires to fulfill. Your soul thirst, your soul hunger, what drives you and me to seek joy and peace and all these other blessings that we yearn for The gospel says that finds its fulfillment in God and what God is doing in the sending of Jesus into the world is providing that feast. 
which is another way to talk about the kingdom of God. When God rules upon the earth, when our wills are submitted to him, that's when, that's when the feast begins. So there's this extraordinary invitation then that is picked up in the New Testament that if you're hungry, come. If you're thirsty, come. Remember Jesus talked about that? The woman at the well? If you knew the person talking to you, he says, you would have asked from him living water. And he would have given you that water that springs up into everlasting life. Or in John chapter 6, he says, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, and if a man eats of me, he will live forever. <clears throat> That's the invitation. It's not, it's not automatic that we, that we get to the feast, right? You have to respond to the invitation. And... Uh, in the middle there of uh, Isaiah 55, that's, that's why the prophet says, uh, let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. So God provides the feast and he gives the invitation, but you and I need to respond believing that God really does provide, that God really does desire to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. And that makes sense because God created those deep longings. So there's an invitation. And then there, there is in this chapter the reference to joy and peace. Those, you know, the two candles that we've talked about these two weeks in succession, <clears throat> they're right in, in the passage. Verse 12, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And the word, the word here, the word we're thinking about this week is, is peace. And we've talked about that occasionally before. It's that Hebrew word shalom, which has a, has a broader reference than our English word peace has. Uh, the English word suggests something more like uh, absence of conflict, tranquility, you know, that, and that is a part of this Hebrew word shalom, but, but it is larger, and for me, the best way to say it is that shalom points to a life of comprehensive well-being. We looked at this chart once before. Comprehensive well-being, which picks up the notion of wholeness, <clears throat> completeness, prosperity, health, safety, and harmony with God and others. 
when you have those things coming together, you have shalom. You have peace. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, this comprehensive well-being. Even though the Assyrians are tearing up the countryside, even though Jerusalem is surrounded, and even, not in Isaiah's day, but not too long afterwards, even when Jerusalem is battered down and the temple is destroyed and the people go off into captivity and hopelessness is all around. Isaiah looks for a day when comprehensive well-being is going to surround and embrace the people of God. Extraordinary promise. In fact, What he does at the end of this chapter is that he points us back to the beginning of the story. We've seen him do this before, right? He points us back to the Garden of Eden, to God's original creation purposes. When human beings are in harmony with God and they're in harmony with the rest of creation, Did you pick up on that in, uh, in verse 13 when we read it? Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. Now thorns and briars, see, if we're, if we're Old Testament people and we remember the story, <clears throat> our minds immediately go back to the opening chapters of the Bible. And and the garden where everything is healthy and whole and peace-filled. And then human beings decide that they have a better plan for running their lives and to be in harmony with God. And judgment falls upon them. And part of the judgment is that the earth itself will be Cursed is what Scripture says. The earth itself gets cursed, and the result is, God says, it will bring forth thorns and briars. And you sow the good seed, and the good seed gets squeezed out by the thorns and the briars. Life is going to be hard, and, and here... Isaiah says there is a day coming of comprehensive well-being and instead of the thorn bush, the juniper grows. That's that little evergreen tree that gets the blueberries, right? Beautiful. And instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. The, The prettiest tree on our church property is a myrtle tree, right, Scott? Which uh, two years ago was the most beautiful tree on the property. And then Scott said, uh, cut it back. And Pete West uh, took him very literally in what he said. And I was sure they destroyed the whole tree, but Scott 
reassured me that, uh, that they do that all the time in the South. And uh, believe it or not, it did come back. And you can see it. It's right over by the little college, uh, cottage we're getting ready to renovate. Beautiful tree. So here's, here's a, a picture. I've been thinking about this chapter in Isaiah. It's almost, in my mind, like a, uh, an ancient music video where you're listening to the music and on the screen are images flashing in the background that connect with the music, you know? And this, this poetry works that way. You're reading the words, <clears throat> this message about what the future is going to look like that God brings, and, and in the background there's images. That's what poetry does. It gives you the images. So the image flashes of a marvelous feast that you're invited to, and all you have to do is come. And then there's this message of joy and peacefulness, of comprehensive well-being. And once again, in the background, there's this flashing image of, of the whole of creation restored in its original beauty. And Isaiah says, this, this is coming. This is what God is going to do. So wait for it. Look for it. Seek after it. Don't go running after other things. Seek after God. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let them turn to the Lord. And then uh, not only is creation restored, but notice the other thing that's woven into this passage, and that is the coming of the Messiah. When is this going to take place? Well, no time set on it. There never is in Scripture, but there's specific events, and the great event is the coming of the Messiah, the descendant of David. So in verse 4, we hear these words. Uh, Or verse 3, give ear and come to me, listen that you may live, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. What's the faithful love of God promised to David? Well, it's the promise that David would never lack an heir to sit upon the throne of Israel. It's the promise that God in David's descendants, would establish a kingdom that would never end. It's uh, connected with that vision that the prophet Daniel had of the the four great empires. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then in the days of that fourth empire, The stone cut without hands falls from heaven and drops upon the feet of the image and destroys the image. And the stone grows to be a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And in the interpretation of the dream, Daniel says that mountain that grows to fill the earth is God's kingdom, the kingdom that never ends. 
So these are images from the Old Testament. And Isaiah tells us that the coming of joy and peace, the coming of the great feast, the restoration of all the world to its original beauty and God's intention, that comes about as God fulfills his faithful promises to King David. When the anointed one comes, the Mashiach, the Messiah, and his everlasting kingdom is established. And so Isaiah says, in all the <coughs> topsy-turviness of his day, all the distress, all the pain, he says, keep watching because this is what God is going to do. So nothing happens. Judea gets conquered by the Babylonians. Jews go into exile. Some of them return 70 years later, but many of them remain in exile. They're, they're in the diaspora, the diaspora. They're, they're spread throughout the empire. And the empires succeed one another. Media Persia takes over, and then the empires of Greece take over. And finally, the strong hand of Rome grows and dominates the whole Mediterranean area. And still nothing. But then comes the beginning of the fulfillment. 700 years. And Luke tells us the story. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So we looked at this passage in Luke last week with its announcement of joy. But the announcement is not just of joy, it's an announcement of peace. Isaiah's prophetic words are being fulfilled because God always keeps his word. Even if it takes 700 years. Or, in our case, even if it takes 2,000 plus years as we wait for the second advent of the king. Luke tells us there's an announcement here of good news. The good news is that God is now acting to bring peace, to bring joy to send his Messiah. This is Messiah the Lord, the angel says to the shepherds. 
Now, even that word good news, see, that's, that's out of Isaiah, not out of chapter 55, but it's out of Isaiah. Numerous places, the prophet uses those words. For example, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, gospel, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. You see the images that are pulled together there. An announcement of good news, which is the announcement of peace, the announcement of salvation, and the news that God's kingdom is being freshly established. God is acting to bring his gracious, life-giving rule to the world. This is what's happening at Christmas, that first Christmas time. <clears throat> now this week, I, I've been tossing around the fact that this gospel this good news of what God is doing, it comes into a world that, for the most part, doesn't receive it or acknowledge it. Right? That it, it comes originally to the people of Jerusalem, and most of them aren't interested. They're looking elsewhere. Bethlehem's only a couple miles south of Jerusalem, you can, at night you can see the lights of Bethlehem from the city of Jerusalem. It's not that far away. And, and yet when the wise men come to Jerusalem and they say, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? You know, where's the Messiah? Well, the Bible students come out and they say, oh, well, you know, uh, that's Bethlehem, Micah, chapter 5. That, that's the place. It's a couple of miles away. They don't even bother to look. So that's the world. And, and it's often, I think, for us, that this message of peace, which says the deepest yearnings of your hearts are found in what God is doing in Jesus Christ, it's because there are so many other distractions and there's so many other counterfeits that take our attention away from what God is doing. And I, I got thinking about that actually the last couple of weeks. I, I bumped into in my reading an inscription that is now housed at the British Museum in London. <clears throat> and the inscription is, I don't know if it's from a, an old altar that they discovered or a wall or whatever, but it's, it's an engraving. And it comes from the time of Jesus. And it talks about Caesar Augustus, the Roman Emperor Octavian, who is arguably the greatest, most significant of all the Roman emperors. And uh, he was born, he was, 
he was emperor prior to the coming of Jesus and lived until Jesus would have been about 20 years old. In fact, he's the guy that, that is talked about by Luke in the beginning of Luke when he says uh, Caesar Augustus had set a decree that all the world should be taxed, right? And you had to go up to your hometown, so Mary and Joseph went from Nazareth south to Bethlehem. Well, that's, that's the guy. And so here's this inscription honoring Caesar Augustus. And I've highlighted some striking things here, to me at least. Uh, it says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus. Now, Zeus was the chief god in the Greek pantheon of gods. He was the sky god, and uh, you know, he, he's the chief guy. So, Augustus, which means, by the way, venerable, and has overtones of deity. So, here's, here's a human being, a ruler, a king, an emperor, who is son of a god and a savior of the common folk. A savior, wow. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people. A lot of people prayed to and for him. But surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good, and at its prime, there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? And you do wonder, don't you, to what extent Luke may have known of that very kind of thinking regarding the emperor. Uh, with, with this emperor and the use of the term Augustus, you, be, you get the beginning of a cult, a worship of the emperors as divine or semi-divine beings. To what extent does Luke, when he talks about the announcement of the angels that this is the Messiah, the Lord, joy to men of God's good will, good pleasure. Uh, and, and this is what is known as a description of the Pax Romana, Pax Romana means the Roman peace. The Roman Empire was, was like the first of its kind in the world in terms of bringing order to the chaos of the Mediterranean world. They, they built roads. They, they brought about a legal system which, which began to improve the lives of the people. There was a lot of wealth. Uh, And so it was a reign of peace. Cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. 
But it comes at a cost. The cost is you have an emperor who is divine or semi-divine, and people are encouraged to pray for the spirit, the soul of the emperor. That goes with it. And so it wouldn't be very long before the Christians would be getting into trouble because they would be required to offer sacrifices to the emperor, and they'd refuse to do it. Why? Because they knew that the emperor was a counterfeit and that the promises of Rome would ultimately fail and that their hope needed to be in the God who sent his Messiah into the world. And so, as the Romans insisted, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians said no. Their confession of faith was Jesus is Lord. So, you know, I think about that for us. The promise is a promise of peace to those who look to the king, to those who search for him, to those who wait for him, because the king who came is the king who promises to return. And it will be at his return that peace in its fullness will come upon the world. Peter says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We are people of hope. We are people of love. And we rejoice. We have joy in that hope and promise. And we are people who are called to enjoy God's peace. Even now, in the midst of COVID and all kinds of national and international distress, we're still the people who believe that God's promise is good, of comprehensive well-being. And that means that even now, As uh, Dallas Willard says, I can be hurt, but I can't be harmed. I can be hurt because the world is still a difficult place. But I can't be harmed in any ultimate sense because I am cared for by a God who says, I am going to make everything new. So, Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice together. Let's live in hope, fresh hope in this new year that's coming. Let's live in love, not just love for God, but love for one another. The stress of the last couple of years has made that hard for us. And let's be people of peace who rejoice in the comprehensive well-being that God has promised to us and given to us in Jesus.
let's, uh, let's sing. <laughs>